wander away from you. Yet always you pursue, always your power is displayed. Hearing your voice above all others, my reality no longer drives me. Your heart consumes me. Seeing the world with new eyes, I cry out for justice. What others see not has become an eyesore. I cannot shake them, but in isolation, your faithfulness is my companion. We must now turn aside from a dead religion to a living heart. Let your salvation burn through the thicket of our disobedience. Let your covenant love make everything new so we may discover a life lived in peace. And that's the prophets. These people who see life differently than everybody else who's just walking around doing normal life. You bump into one of them and they are looking and seeing the same world you see differently. And your encounter with one of them changes you as well. We want to continue our series about a league of their own, listening to the story of the prophets. I wanted to say a a couple things first. The the, the first is that uh, I remember when she was born. Wow. Thank you. Uh, the other, uh, frankly, is that uh, my wife, Laura, preached last week on the prophet Nathan and uh, shared with you that it had been a tough month because her uh, baby brother, David, uh, was very sick with cancer. And we spent most of the week in Chicago uh, with David, and he died on Friday about midnight. And that was a good thing, the end of his suffering, but a hard thing as well. And she thanks you for your prayers. The prophets are people who see things differently. 28% of the Bible is prophetic literature. It is something that means that we don't read about 28% of the Bible. We we don't understand it. It's too weird. It's uh, seemingly for a different time and age. We don't understand it. I want to give you the ability in three images to understand the role of the prophets. The first is that just like you and me, the prophets could be on a hill overlooking a bay filled with boats. (laughs) The prophets have great imagination (laughs) on this bay overlooking the shore filled with boats. Could I go to that, those three slides of the, please? This worked a lot better in my mind than it did. Okay, how about this? I'll do it another way. This will be better. No, this is better. Let's forget the slides altogether. The first one is this. Uh, Everybody go like this. Like that, okay? 
Now, you're all looking very strange, and I look completely different. But you're facing the front, and you're looking at the whole front of the sanctuary. You see through your arms the organ and the slides and the cross and everything, okay? That's the way that most of the time the prophets are living, like this. They are living life, and when you read the prophet's story... They are looking at the same world that you're looking at, only they're often seeing different things. But their life is the first part of the story. You see it like this. They see it the same world, but they they notice different things. Look at the same wall like this. Everybody go like this and look through your hands. Look through your hands like you're looking through a window in a wall And focus, you cannot see the whole front wall, can you? You see just parts of that wall. The prophets are given the ability by God to see the near future. To look through the window and see the near future, often through dreams or visions. They can't see all of what's happening, but they can see maybe the big picture. That's what many of the prophecies and dreams are about. The third role of the prophet is this. Everybody like this? Okay, now look at the wall. You can't see anything, but look look at the cross. Look at the cross. When you look at the cross like this, boy, you look really strange. When you look at the cross like this, all you can see is the cross. You can't tell anything else that's going on, but you can see that very clearly. In ways, frankly, you focus on that in ways Different than when you're like this because it's the only thing you can see. That's the gift of the prophets. God has given them a picture of the end of the world. They cannot see the whole thing. They can only see a little image of it. But what they see is filled with clarity and power. And it changes their life. So when you are reading the book of the prophets, say, which of these lenses am I seeing this through? Is this an event that the prophet is living? Or is it a dream that they are looking at the near future? Or is it a picture of the end of the world? And I shouldn't, I shouldn't expect to understand much of this tiny picture except something big is going to change. With me? Let's look at Daniel. Daniel, in some ways, is the king of the prophets. He is the last of the five major prophets. That just means that those five guys had long books. The other 12, the minor prophets, had short books. But he is also late in time. That is, late in the season of the prophets, Daniel arises. He is what is called a post-exile prophet. This is how Daniel's story starts. In the third year of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged Jerusalem. The Lord delivered Judah into his hand along with the temple of God. He carried off the gold of the temple of his God in Babylonia. And the king ordered his chief official to bring some of the Israelite boys from the royal family and nobility. Young men... Handsome, showing aptitude, well-informed, quick to learn, qualified to serve in the palace. The assistant was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. They ate at the royal table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, 
they were entered the service of the king. Among those chosen were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official was to give them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, he would be called Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know those names. This is what happens to the little empire of Israel. It is a very little country, a very little empire caught between huge empires. And when they wash on by, they take Israel along as if it's just an appetizer. They have done this several times in history, and once they did it with Daniel. In a day, Daniel loses his country, he loses his culture. He lost the relationships he cherished. He'd have to learn a foreign language, live and die where he never wanted to go. He would never return. He even loses his name. He loses his name, and that's a big deal. When Dan was doing the children's sermon, he used the name Daniel. Each of their Hebrew names had a reference of God into it. Daniel, Mishael, references the El in Elohim, God. Hananiah, Azariah, end with a reference of the God that they called Yahweh. Jewish names remind the Jews that they belong to God. And the new name that Nebuchadnezzar gave was his way of saying, you have a new king now, give yourself to me. Allow Babylon to define your enemy, find new gods. Your old God lets you down. Now the name Daniel literally means the Lord will judge. It's a great name. The Lord will be my judge. His whole young life, Every time Daniel had heard his name, it was a reminder, the Lord will set things right, the Lord will see justice is done. His name had a promise written right in it. But now, now he's not Daniel anymore. Who is he? God was not setting things right. Where is God? In fact, it looked like the whole story was broken. What happens when you go to Babylon? What happens when your life doesn't turn out the way that you thought? You're in Babylon. At a dead-end job, or divorced, struggling with infertility, having children that are breaking your heart, being single or broke, becoming deathly ill, or in depression. You're in Babylon. Sometimes when you have all the success in the world, you wake up dissatisfied as if something is wrong with the world. And you're right, there is something wrong with the world. You live in Babylon. What happens when life turns out different than you thought? And you live in a culture very different than the values of God. You're in Babylon. Daniel never went home. Daniel lived for 50 years and served four different kings in two different empires. And he puts together all three of those views we learned as a prophet. The big picture, just what he lived, how he lived, the dreams of the near future, and the periscope of the end of the world. Daniel can be seen, it's 12 chapters, but it can be seen as three dramas and three dreams 
and one destiny. Three dramas, three dreams, one destiny. The dramas are at the beginning. They're actually what we remember most in the story, right? The young men are drawn into Babylon. They are given the unclean junk food of the Babylonian Empire. And instead of sitting at the king's table and eating it, they say, God told us not to eat like this. We can't eat this food. Please serve us vegetables and fruit. And the official said, can't do that. The king will kill me if you're not flourishing. They said, just try it for 10 days. They try, not the Babylonian diet, but God's diet from Israel. And in 10 days, they have blossomed better than anybody else. Drama one. Drama two, they come to a place of power. And the king sets up a huge idol that everybody is supposed to worship and everybody does except for three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? They don't do it and they are thrown into the furnace and they live. Drama number two. Drama number three is the story that Dan told the kids. Out of jealousy, the legislators, the other legislators, pack into the language of a long bill, just a little phrase that says, everybody has to pray to the king. And then they trap Daniel, who when he finds out about the lock, opens his windows three times a day like he's done all of his life and prays to God. And when the king hears about it, he has no choice but to have him thrown to the lions. And the lions start to pray with him. He lives. Three dramas. That is this. Living a life among everybody else, far from home, with different values. This picture is supposed to give us courage to live in a different land. It is to remind you that you are not at home. That you are living far from the values of the kingdom of heaven. And that you are not to curse home, not to curse where you live, but to learn how to bless it. How to thrive without becoming a Babylonian. The, the second, the, the dreams, there is the, dra- the three dramas, the three dreams. The three dreams, frankly, are this. Pictures of the near future. Three different times the king has a dream. Two different kings have dreams and they are terrified because they don't understand what they mean. And they want to kill all the people who say they have the gift of prophecy. And in each time, Daniel says, don't kill anybody. God has told me what is going to happen. The first, remember, was of this big statue. And Daniel says, well, God has told me this is the four kings that are to follow you. And they'll all crash because the foundation is just human. The, The second time, there are a bunch of trees blowing and the roots are shallow. And he says, this is your kingdom. And as long as you're doing okay, it will do okay. But if you get too proud... It'll all blow away. And the third one, you guys might remember, the third little picture is a time where the king is having a feast, and all of a sudden on the front wall, letters appear, a message, and nobody can read the message. And they send for Daniel, and he says, I I don't think I want to read this one. I'll give you half of my kingdom if you'll tell me what this means. No, I don't think, what what does it mean? It means you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're going to die tomorrow. Uh, about that half of the kingdom thing, I think I'll pass. He doesn't kill Daniel, and the next day the emperor is killed. These are the dreams that show that show that life as you and I see it is not always 
what is really happening. And we read the stories of the dreams of Daniel to give us perspective that is eternal. You and I should go through this world with bifocals, focused intently on things like nuclear deals with Iran, and at the same time confident that God has a different view. And the futility of putting faith in the powers of the earth will leave us bitterly disappointed in the end. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Dramas and dreams are what make up the first six chapters, the first half of the book of Daniel. The whole second half is about destiny. It's about the weird part. It's about the part that makes you not want to read the book of Revelation because it's just too weird. They're just strange dreams. And these last six chapters are visions visions of the conflict that will lead to the end of the world. And they're there to give us hope in very trying times. Now, we, everybody likes to know the future, right? Everybody wants to know the future. Uh, billions, to our shame, billions are spent on astrology, millions on Ouija boards, palm readers, Everybody looks down on those people. How stupid can you be? How many of you play the stock market? Not knowing what will happen. There are three quick scenes. Remember these? Three quick scenes that will show you the end of the world in Daniel. They begin in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 2, it says, In my vision that night, I saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea, strong winds blowing in every direction, and then four huge beasts came out of the water, each different from the others. The first one was like a lion eating the heart of a man. The second one was like a bear who eat all flesh. The third one was like a leopard that would rule us all. And the fourth one I can't even describe, but it had a little horn on top that mocked all of life and scared me. When you see the end of the world, you shouldn't expect it to make sense. It's symbolic language. You are trying to describe the indescribable. Why would you think it's understandable? And Daniel is speaking not primarily to the people who live in Babylon. He is speaking to the children of faith in a language they would understand. So when he says, I saw four people Coming, four creatures coming out of the sea. Well, for them, the sea, the sea was a symbol of chaos and death. This is a dangerous time, Daniel was saying in code. And, and he said, one looked like a bear, and one looked like a leopard, and one looked like, I, 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 can't, I, I can't even tell. We don't know what those were. But we're pretty sure that they were emperors, empires, other nations. We don't know which ones, but they did. And the reason I know that they did is what is the symbol of Russia? It is a bear. And the symbol of the United Kingdom is a lion. And the symbol of the United States is an eagle. We would know that. People in China would be going, I have no idea what they're talking about. That's what Daniel's doing. He's sending a message in code. We don't understand it because we don't have the code. But what if they were reading this at a synagogue right next to a golf course here in Minneapolis and I said something like, he strode the fairways like a tiger but fell into the woods. 
And then I saw a new star rise over the Jordan. What would I be talking about? Right, golf. You people are so much smarter than Saturday night's crowd. The pictures that are drawn are symbols but need to be taken with a sense of humility because we could be wrong. What Daniel, what Daniel is saying here is coming out of the sea will be trouble. And from the Holocaust to Stalin to Popat to children starving in North Korea to, to racial injustice in this country, there is trouble living among the nations. And one of the reasons that the prophet is to speak is to say, expect trouble. The famous theologian Karl Barth was reading the book of Daniel when he says, the purpose then of God's word to us is to comfort those who are afflicted. Help is on the way. And to afflict those who are comfortable, judgment is on the way. And to ask each which word they will hear. Are you the afflicted who needs comfort or the comfortable who needs to be afflicted? That's where Daniel starts with his scene one. Scene two starts in verse nine. He said, I looked over here and there were thrones setting place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing white as the snow, the hair of his head white like wool. His throne flamed with fire and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire flowed out, coming before him, and thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands times, ten thousand times stood before him. The court was seated, and all the books of life were opened. And I kept looking, and all the beasts were slain, and bodies destroyed, and thrown into the blazing fire. The second thing that Daniel sees is when you think it can't get worse, see this. God is on his throne. All will be well. The second principle is that God's justice will come. And it is not meant, it is not meant to just be a word of comfort because every time it's said is, it is said to people who are living in Babylon and having to choose what side they're going to live on. Are you going to continue to be a stupid Jew believing that God who's let you down? Or are you going to join the crowd and live like a good American? I mean, a good Babylonian. Choose. But know that the God of judgment will come. Know that the God of judgment sees everything and knows all hearts. The second thing that Daniel wants to do with this, he can't even describe what God looks like but he says, the ancient today is the purer of snow. I, uh, <clears throat> my last year of seminary, one of my favorite professors was given tenure. That means he was set for life, basically. And, uh, and they had a ceremony that uh, was just rooted in the 16th and 17th century. All the faculty processed in their regalia and he looked like a cartoon figure himself. He had a hat to show his degree from the Sorbonne and a uh, robe to show that he was from Oxford and an academic stole to show that his PhD had been from Harvard. And he walked up and right in front of him was his mentor uh, who was a famous, famous theologian from Harvard. 
and he knelt in front of him, and the man turned to us and said, uh, let's pray. No, he didn't. He said, let us pray. It felt like God was in the house. And then Steve knelt, and uh, Professor Neighbor said, O thou ancient of days, fill the temple with fire and sit on your throne. O thou pure as snow, rest uncomfortably on this brother and never let his eyes not see your sight, thou king to come. Forty years later, I remember it almost word for word. Because somebody in the house said, this is God. The prophets, remember? God is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your homie. The ancient of days. The last scene, though, is in verse 13. And it says that something happens approaching the throne. And he says, and then I, I, I couldn't really tell what happened But in my vision, at night I looked, and before me there was one like a son of man. A son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He came right up to the throne of God and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory. All sovereign power. All the people and nations and men and women of every nation and language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. If the first scene showed that this world is filled with trouble and we are to be comforted, and the second showed God seated on his throne far away, the third shows that the answer to our weary world is not religion, it is not a secret handshake. It is not laws that keep the good people close and the bad people far away. The answer to this world only can be if someone will come. If someone will come. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth says that he is the son of man. And everybody who had read the book of Daniel said, what? Because the son of man comes from the throne of God and goes back to the throne of God. And Jesus said, I saw the Son of Man descending on the clouds with authority and power to judge the world. Jesus referred to himself as one who had come to bring justice, as the only one who could comfort the afflicted and give the comfortable justice, who would wipe every tear from every eye And the sea would be no more. These are the prophets. They are not meant to leave you feeling, oh, well, that was a nice sermon, Pastor. They are meant to shake you up, to shake you to life. The intent behind the prophets is not so that you can study them like a manual and figure out when Jesus is coming back, but that you would live now in Babylon differently with courage and hope because Jesus is coming back and he brings both judgment and life life in all of its abundance it doesn't mean your world changes all that much the famous evangelist of the 20th century was D.L. Moody 
a good Chicago boy. And Moody, at the end of his career, uh, was out in the garden, and one of his students came out holding the book of Revelation and said, I think I think I've, I've understand it better. Now it means that Jesus is coming. Dr. Moody, what would you do it, what would you do if you discovered that Jesus was coming today? And Moody said, well, I, I would make sure that I was doing a very good job with the tomatoes. You are not called to take your life and go and hide on a mountain. You are called to bring your life before God and say, I live in Babylon. What is today's task? And the king will lead you one step at a time. Lord God, I thank you for these sisters and brothers who have been reminded today that as comfortable as this place is and as much as we love our country, it is Babylon. We are far from the place where you are the king and what your word says goes. And we are far from the kind of people who wholeheartedly plunge without thought of consequence, into following you every hour. I pray that your word will give us the confidence that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had to live without fear of consequence. I pray that the dreams that you give us of the near future will offer us the perspective that in this world we will have trouble, but you have overcome the world. And I pray that these tantalizing little glimpses we get of the end of the world will remind us that you alone are the king and that your justice will not tarry and that you spend all of your life, you spend all that is in your life to come and rescue those who cry out for the name of Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, we pray. Amen.